my name is Ulf Sverdrup. I'm the director of NUPI. It's great to welcome you here. And uh, not least, it's great to welcome Ambassador Christopher Hill to Oslo and to Norway. He just landed. Uh, he flew in from Warsaw this morning, landed at Gardermoen. And it's uh, great that you can be here. He is currently the dean of the Joseph Krobel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. And he has, as you know, a most distinguished uh, diplomatic career. He was, among other things, the ambassador to Macedonia, to Kosovo, to Poland, to Korea, and also to Iraq. He was the assistant secretary for state for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. He led the U.S. delegation to the six-party talks on North Korea. So he has very been very much a key figure in some of the critical developments during the last, let's say, 20 or more years. He, he in negotiating the Bosnia Agreement, the Dayton Agreement. In the Kosovo crisis that later led to the NATO intervention. He's been a key figure in the negotiations with uh, North Korea. And by through that, also, of course, an uh, important figure in the relationship between the US and China, I presume. <laughs> and he also oversaw the national election in Iraq. So we have a lot of things to talk about today. Uh, and uh, I should also mention that, this, as many of you know, Christopher has also written an excellent book. Uh, it's called The Outpost, uh, very much acclaimed view of uh, uh, diplomatic uh, front lines of American diplom diplomacy. And I would say also a book on the difficulties and challenges of diplomacy and the limits to diplomacy, perhaps. So we have, uh, as I said, a lot of things to talk about. We have asked Christopher today to reflect upon two issues that I think occupy a lot of us. The first is what kind of foreign policy could we expect from Trump? Uh, there's no more than uh, 100 days since he entered office. His team is not yet fully in place. And there is still uncertainty as to the direction and how he will manage some of the key crises that we see on the horizon. So that's the first stage issue. Secondly, we have asked Christopher to reflect also on one of the other key topics of the day, the North Korean issue. What is really at stake? What kind of solutions could we see, if any? And what kind of scenarios could we expect? So it's great to have you here, Christopher. Please, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to uh, First of all, to get up to this uh, beautiful city and this beautiful country and to be here in this really quite world-renowned institute that has, uh, I think, addressed problems throughout the world for so many years. Uh, we don't necessarily have a solution to all these problems, but I, I think we've certainly at least figured out what, uh, what causes some of them. Um, I've just come from uh, Poland this morning. In fact, I'll go back to Poland uh, tonight. Uh, another country where I where I served for uh, uh, a couple of times, um, but being in Poland, maybe I will start off with a little anecdote that I always like, which I think speaks to uh, the contemporary scene as well. Which is, there was a Polish party first secretary many uh, years ago named Władysław Gomułka, a name that's probably at this point lost to history. And Gomułka was known for uh, very long speeches and not particularly successful metaphors. And one day he stood in front of a crowd in the southern Polish city of Kraków, and he said, Comrades, just a few years ago, 
our fatherland stood on the very edge of a deep abyss. And I'm here to tell you today, comrades, that we have taken an important step forward. <laughs> so when I, when I think of the, uh, the uh, issue of looking at this new administration in Washington, and uh, especially some of these uh, issues that are out there, uh, notably the Middle East problems, but uh, of course uh, North Korea, which is where I think I'll focus. It is important not to take that important step forward, but rather to reflect on where we are and what we need to do about it. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, President Trump was not elected president on the basis of his uh, expertise in foreign policy. Um, he, was, he was, however, elected president on the basis of a lot of frustration in the United States that somehow our foreign policy had led us into areas that were not really issues uh, that uh, directly affected our national, our national interest and had led us onto, uh, into questions that really were, uh, were um, not, uh, not really germane to what our country needed to do. Uh, Trump came in with this kind of view of foreigners that is a deeply embedded view in the United States, the notion that uh, globalization is bad and that overall our engagement in, in the world represents not so much an engagement but rather an entanglement in the, in the world and that somehow we need to extract ourselves from these issues and uh, kind of cut them down to specific problems that might affect our national security. He, uh, Trump, uh, as many American politicians have done before, has completely conflated the issue of national security, of international engagement, and of military uh, uh, strength, and essentially has looked at the military dimensions of these, of these issues and felt that that is where the U.S. has somehow been lacking under the Obama administration. It is way too early, really, to write the history of the Obama administration, but I think there is certainly a perception in the United States, and it was this perception that did help uh, get uh, President Trump elected, a perception that somehow uh, Obama was weak and that the, in this weakness uh, the world has become an even more dangerous place than it was be before President Obama was elected. And now we will have a very strong president who will not be weak, who will take decisive actions on issues and somehow protect the United States by his uh, decisiveness. But I think um, as President, uh, president Trump has come into office, he's found, and he's actually said this on a couple of occasions, that these problems, lo and behold, turned out to be more complex than he thought they were. It is rather amazing to have uh, a senior uh, politician, let alone a president, said, well, you know, after 10 minutes, I realized there was more to this issue in North <laughs> Korea than I thought. And, uh, you know, for many uh, professionals in, uh, in Washington, these are kind of uh, astounding thoughts that somehow uh, he didn't know about its complexity. And when you combine it with the fact that not knowing about complexity, uh, you combine that with the fact he didn't seem to want to learn about uh, the issues. There is, uh, to put it mildly, a kind of lack of intellectual curiosity. 
And so when you combine those two things and then combine still a third element, which is his view that somehow he has an instinct for these issues that's far more um, uh, on target than the rest of us have, and that he can use this instinct to overcome a lack of uh, knowledge and a lack of experience. So um, when people act on instinct, uh, that can be good for a basketball player who might know to go left rather than go right uh, or something. It can be a little worrisome uh, in foreign policy because I would argue that um, uh, being uh, hard to predict can be, can be a good thing in, say, sports. It's not necessarily a good thing for, the, as we call our president of the United States, the leader of the free world. Um, in fact, right now, there are a lot of jokes in the U.S. That, to the effect that uh, uh, when uh, Chancellor Merkel came to Washington, one of the uh, newspapers said, uh, it's great to have the leader of the free world meet the United States president. So there's a kind of a sense that things are, are very different right now. Now, I think uh, it is fair to say that we have a president who is... Uh, who won't admit to learning anything because he believes that everything is kind of derived from himself. He doesn't need to learn stuff. He already instinctively understands these issues. And yet, I mean, we're seeing a president who is uh, trying hard to figure out what to do with pro about problems and really not to, and, and a president who doesn't really want to look to the past as being, uh, as being anything to study in order to, uh, to react to future events. So we had, uh, with respect to North Korea, um, the vice president go to uh, South Korea and to Japan and say, the era of strategic patience is over. And um, so this, of course, had a lot of people wondering, well, what does he mean by that? And in fact, everyone loved that expression. The new Secretary of State Tillerson used it. Trump has used it. No more strategic patience. So people were wondering, well, are, are we now going to have uh, strategic impatience? Or are we going to have tactical patience as opposed to strategic patience? Uh, what, is, what does this mean? And the answer is no one really knows because I'm not sure Vice President Pence or President Trump or, frankly, Secretary of State Tillerson knew what they meant, except to say that they know that this North Korea problem is not going away on its own, is growing in seriousness, and may well be a problem that uh, the American people will become extremely uh, um, conscious of come the next election in, 20, in 2020. So I think the president has decided he wants to um, make this a big issue now to try to address it and address it in the sort of transactional mode that he's used to from his private sector uh, engagement. And yet, um, he's not really sure what to do, and he's not really sure uh, how to do it. So the first thing, you recall President Trump doesn't like to acknowledge the things he said in the campaign were not quite right. So um, in the campaign, he said, let China do it. This is China's problem. Give it to the Chinese. So he doesn't want to say, whoops, that was a mistake. We're going to have to be more engaged on this. So he does want to double down on a campaign uh, promise. Now, I might add that one uh, exception to what I've just said is that uh, we have not heard him again say that we need to give nuclear weapons to Japan and South Korea. That seems to have stopped with the campaign. But certainly the idea of let's work more with China is uh, something that he has picked up from his own campaign and now 
wants to, uh, wants to engage in it. But he's realized that when China looks at North Korea, they see a far more complex problem than when Americans look at, foreign, uh, at North Korea. Now, it's very cu customary in U.S. newspapers to say China's worried that if they put pressure on North Korea, the system there will collapse and you'll have lots of refugees coming out of North Korea that could destabilize uh, China. This is kind of a typical sort of critique of why China has not done, done more. But in fact, when you start looking at, at uh, you know, let's say all 22.8 million North Koreans went north rather than where they probably would go is south, uh, you realize that 22.8 million North Koreans probably aren't going to destabilize China or cause a huge problem in China. So you have to sort of think about whether that's really uh, the case. And so when you start going into it a little more, you realize that there are, as President Trump uh, acknowledged, some complexities to this. For example, when China looks at neighboring states, and this, I'm talking about the last 2,000 years of history, which is a chunk of history. I mean, you have to respect 2,000 years. They don't necessarily see other sovereign states in the sort of 18, uh, 1648 mode. They see tributary states. They see states that somehow uh, are there to uh, sort of uh, uh, be respectful and, in fact, pay tribute to the Middle Kingdom. So when they look at these uh, at these states, they have trouble deal. The Chinese have trouble dealing with them as ec as as equals. But then when they look at these states, they have trouble thinking that the U.S. alliances with some of these states is anything different than their own view of these states. So when they look at South Korea, they not only do not see a uh, a separate sovereign state, they see what is what is really happening is the U.S. has its own tributary state called South Korea. And so when the Chinese think, well, if North Korea goes away, South Korea could become the, uh, could become the successor state, and that would put a U.S. tributary state right up on the Chinese border and uh, with uh, CIA listening posts on the Chinese border. And this would be broadly understood within China as a victory for American strategic interests, a defeat for Chinese uh, strategic interests. I submit to you that that's a far more active concern within Chinese thinking than the idea that they're worried about refugees should all 22 million North Koreans decide to leave and to leave by going north. So has the U.S., is it possible for the U.S. to try to allay Chinese concerns about this? I think it is, but I think it's going to take some serious, some serious effort on, on the part of the U.S. to reach the Chinese and have a deep dive as to what our interests are in, um, with uh, uh, North Korea or with succession on the Korean Peninsula and what our interests are not. For example, I don't think you would ever see U.S. troops up on the Yalu River. I don't even think you would ever see uh, listening posts up on the Yalu River. I think from the mood in the United States, it would be difficult to keep even the troops in what is today the Republic of Korea, that is South Korea, I think it would be even difficult to keep those troops there. There will be a lot of people saying, why do we have troops there? And in fact, Donald Trump has himself raised the issue, why are we there protecting South Korea uh, when they're not paying for it? In fact, he's wrong. The South Koreans are doing a lot uh, to pay for it. But secondly, he's, he's 
wrong because the U.S. has troops there for our own security and not just for South Korean security. But the point is, I think we would, the United States would have difficulty keeping any troops on the Korean Peninsula rather than be forward deploying them up to the Yalu River. We need to have a serious conversation with the Chinese uh, about that. But I think also the problem is even, even deeper in China. If you consider a neighboring state, a tributary state of North Korea, somehow going down, it's a Marxist-Leninist state. It was a historical ally. There are Chinese who still uh, go out to the grave of their grandfather uh, who died in the, Korean, in the Korean War and who pay homage to the fact that their grandfather or granduncle died there. Do you think they would, they're just going to forget this all of a sudden, that there is no historical connection with the DPRK? Uh, no, I think the Chinese are going to worry that somehow uh, having a Marxist-Leninist neighbor, a historical neighbor goes down, going down would increase the tensions within China between the various groups who say we need to move faster on reform versus we need to move very slowly, which is what, where Xi Jinping is, to, that is to move very slowly. And if you have this change in the Korean Peninsula, how would it affect that domestic debate? In short, for Chinese, when they look at, at the Korean Peninsula, they don't see some distant security problem. They see a very real problem right in their neighborhood that affects their own internal politics. And so uh, I think um, you know, when Xi Jinping considers the whole difficulty of reforming China, you know, he, is, he doesn't want to see the constellation of those forces that is reform fast or reform slowly. He doesn't want to see that constellation uh, affected by uh, a change in the Korean Peninsula. So it's true that China worries about change, but they worry about change for their own in, in internal reasons. And so I think uh, uh, we need to, the United States, again, needs to have a kind of serious discussion with the Chinese on this. Now, I must say, in the past, the U.S., when we'd get ready to have a serious discussion with the Chinese, we would have a negotiating process that looked a little like a Christmas tree. That is, everyone would want to put their little ornament on the tree so that when we'd start our uh, negotiations, we'd take up every kind of issue, you name it, uh, Tibetan, Tibetan rights, uh, 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 human rights in, in China, Uyghur rights, uh, trade issues, all kinds of things. And frankly, over the years, the United States, because of the way our foreign policy has been organized, not spearheaded by even an NSC or a uh, State Department, but rather by an interagency process, has had real trouble bringing focus to these discussions with the Chinese. So what President Trump has been doing is he's been looking at this situation in North Korea. He, understand it's a, he understands it's a serious problem and a serious problem that could well be his problem in, in his first term. And so I think he's understood quite correctly the need to talk to the Chinese very directly about what needs to be done. And yet he's already encountered this resistance from China that is, they're not quite ready to, to talk about uh, what a North Korean demise would be. And so then President Trump, not wanting to be told that by his negotiating partner, whether it's the uh, Carpenters Union in New Jersey or the uh, Chinese uh, uh, government in, uh, in Beijing, so he says, well, if you're not going to help, that's fine. We'll do it ourselves. 
And that's where the problem starts getting very big, because what in the world does he mean by we're going to do this ourselves? Um, he seems to have, and, and he said it, his vice president has said it, his secretary of state has said it. They have good messaging, by the way, uh, for the most part, although Nikki Haley is sometimes off in a different uh, world. But uh, with respect to uh, you know, the, the, the defense secretary, the secretary of state, the vice president and the president, I mean, they've, they've made it very clear that, quote, everything's on the table. Well, first of all, you have to understand everything's on the table is kind of a, a, a poker metaphor that Americans use all the time. It's not really that earth-shattering that they would use this expression. Until you start kind of saying, okay, what do you really mean by this? And this is where it appears that what they mean is to have uh, somehow an element that is on the table that could have the U.S. Uh, preemptively attacking North Korea. They don't seem to want to rule that out. Uh, General Mattis has tried to walk that back, but the president has not tried to walk that back, and neither has the vice president tried to walk that back. So how would that work? We have in North Korea, a, um, there's a nuclear facility called Yongbyong. Uh, that's not to be confused with Yongpyong in South Korea, where some of the downhill Olympic events will be next year. Uh, <laughs> Yongpyong has no Olympic events. I, I've been there three times. Um, and so the idea might be to strike uh, the nuclear facility there. Uh, how we'd hit it, hard to say, because, uh, you know, there's, uh, there are... Um, we believe there, there are, there's weapons-grade plutonium stored there. Do you really want to hit a facility that has weapons-grade uh, plutonium? Bear in mind, we have no people on the ground. We haven't had any people on the ground there for almost uh, for eight years or so. So we don't really know where things are. And so hitting that particular thing, in or, uh, that facility, in order to uh, destroy it and... Uh, and push the threat back from, uh, from North Korea, a little bit problematic. I mean, it was one thing for that Norwegian and uh, British commando team to go up and take care of that uh, heavy water facility being done by the Germans here. And uh, it's quite another thing to go in Yongbyon where not only do they have, uh, uh, have they extracted plutonium, some 30 kilos, depending on who you believe, but it's the plutonium's there, and also we know that they've been doing, making efforts at uh, highly enriched uranium in, in Yongbyon. So hitting that is problematic. But then, what if the uh, North Koreans uh, decide to retaliate? Well, you could say, well, they won't want to retaliate because the U.S. Uh, uh, US would then retaliate against their retaliation. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, there are some 20 million South Koreans living within range of 14,000 North Korean artillery and missile uh, launchers. So if the North Koreans shot some artillery, no question we would attack that artillery. We, uh, the South Koreans have the mission of counter-battery fire. It's one of the most computerized and uh, high-tech uh, missions, but it does not necessarily stop an artillery shell from being launched, it probably will stop the second one from being launched. Uh, and, where, and it would hit a South Korean population center. So if the U.S. wants to strike North Korean nuclear facilities, 
it kind of has to do it with the South Korean government uh, uh, okay on that. And yet the South Korean government, uh, looking at where its population is, might want to say, okay, but we, now to, we need to evacuate 20 million people, which is, how to put it, not very practical. So um, we would uh, find ourselves in a real problem if we, if we ask the question, unless we're willing to live with that answer. And uh, I don't think we would be. So if we don't ask them, and the North Koreans then hit uh, uh, fire artillery in the, in, at these population centers, what would that do to the U.S.-South uh, Korean alliance? I submit to you would kind of put that alliance back for, for decades to come. So I don't think there's any obvious um, scenario for preemption here. Um, could the U.S. be doing something in the way of cyber attacks? Not to be ruled out. And in fact, we know that the new generation of North Korean missiles have not had a very high uh, success rate. For example, the solid fuel uh, missile Musadan has had an 88% failure rate. Um, but uh, so could we be doing something there already? It's possible. Should we do more in the future? Yes, definitely, in my view, because I think we could do that in the, uh, without triggering a North Korean response, but are we sure we would not trigger a North Korean response? No, we're not. So I think these kinds of direct uh, attacks on North Korean facilities are quite problematic, and I think we need to think that through. Um, what could, I mean, would the Chinese be willing to do something beyond, um, beyond doing what they have to do, which is to live up to U, uh, the UN uh, Security Council sanctions? Um, I think uh, China is going to do more in the Security Council sanctions. We've already seen some uh, reactions in terms of uh, buying, uh, not buying uh, North Korean uh, coal, although some of that may have been market-driven, but still that's an important step. They're also uh, apparently not going to be shipping uh, refined petroleum products to North Korea. North Korea does not have refineries. They require Chinese petroleum. So it's possible China can do something there. But I think the fact is that the North Korean nuclear program is moving faster than the effect of these sanctions uh, could, uh, uh, could be. So the, the sanctions element is not going to be enough to dissuade North Korean uh, behavior. Uh, so, what, uh, so when you talk about working with China, we need to expect something more from the Chinese, and yet I don't think the Chinese are prepared really to activate, for example, elements in the KPA, the Korea People's Army, to somehow be disloyal. That's, uh, that's a tall order. That would be quite a difficult process for the Chinese, and they've never done anything like that before. So. When President Trump and his team comes in and says, this is urgent, no more strategic patience, we need to deal with this uh, immediately, they have to answer the question, at least internally, what do they have in mind? And so far, what they appear to have in mind is to try to suggest that there could be a military response and hope that the North Koreans will take that to mean North Korea should get back to, uh, to negotiation. Meanwhile, however, let's assess whether they would get back to negotiation. Would, would North Korea want to do that? 
Um, North Korea in uh, 2005 uh, agreed in, in this uh, joint statement of September 19, 2005, they agreed to abandon all their nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear programs rather, all nuclear programs, not just weapons, but all nuclear programs. It took a while to get this implemented, but by February 2007, almost uh, 18 months later, we had, a, uh, we had a, um, an agreement where they would begin to disable some of their facilities. They would make, the, make it difficult to put the Yongbyon reactor back on uh, track or back on uh, uh, in working condition. Uh, the United States and others agreed to uh, provide them with some energy assistance and so we were providing energy assistance, by the way, much to the consternation of the party that just elected Donald Trump president because uh, uh, President Bush, who supported this approach, uh, was severely criticized within the Republican Party for somehow talking to the North Koreans and secondly, for giving them any kind of assistance. So there was a process going on, albeit very unpopular in the U.S., but also unpopular from what we can tell within North Korea because by the time, by the summer of 2008, when we got to the key question of verification, it was clear the North Koreans were not prepared to allow any verification of sites that were not already declared in their own declaration. Now, North Korea had, um, had given a nuclear declaration that omitted any reference to highly enriched uranium and only had the actual facilities around the Yongbyon graphite-moderated reactor. So, it was, uh, so when we pressed for broader uh, means to verify, we didn't even ask them to make a, a, a more honest uh, declaration. We simply asked for a broader means to verify uh, their, the non-existence of their nuclear program. The North Koreans essentially said no. Um, there was, a, there was speculation at the time that maybe the North Koreans were waiting for the new administration, that is the Obama administration, to come in. There's also speculation that Kim Jong-il, who in the summer of uh, 2008 had become Kim Jong-very ill because he had had a stroke at, at, uh, in, in August. And so there's speculation, well, maybe uh, the North Koreans are not getting the answers from their leader because he's incapacitated. Uh, hard to say, but it was very clear they were not going to, they were not interested in verification. The Obama administration came in, there was no renewal of interest in verification, and so we essentially have had not had any negotiations since uh, uh, 2008. So, um, does it, meanwhile, we have Kim Jong-un, who is uh, Kim Jong-il's uh, son, who has made pretty clear that he's not interested in, uh, in any kind of negotiation. So we have, I think, a real problem that is going to require a number of uh, solutions. It's going to require, first of all, a close U.S.-South Korean relationship. And that, by the way, is not going to be easy as South Korea goes to the polls. South Koreans go to the polls next week to have their election. Their president, Park Geun-hye, uh, was impeached. She's been in jail. She's begun a, uh, a criminal prosecution. Uh, and uh, so they have a, uh, an election which will probably bring Moon Jae-in uh, Jae into power. Moon Jae-in was, a, uh, was a, uh, a member, was the chief of staff of uh, No Mu-hyun's uh, um, 
presidency at the Blue House. No Moo Hyun was a kind of left-wing, leftist uh, president in, um, who, uh, whose term of office ended in 2000, uh, 2007. So Moon Jae-in is uh, someone who, with well-known uh, uh, questions about the U.S. alliance and who believes that there should be more dialogue with the North Koreans. So um, one of the big issues, as the U.S. and South Korea have been busy trying to strengthen the alliance, including by providing uh, South Korea with uh, elements of an anti-ballistic missile system. I say elements because THAAD, as it's called, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Weapon, uh, Defense System, uh, does not cover all of South Korea. So uh, even, the even the deployment of THAAD, um, which would not necessarily solve the problem but would be a start, is now being questioned by some of the Korean progressives who want to freeze the deployment or look at it and, and sort of take another, uh, take another look at the whole issue of how to manage North Korea. So I think the president, President Trump is going to find he has a difficult task with uh, if Moon Jae-in wins the election, the election, and opinion surveys have him ahead today, he's going to have a difficult task if he thinks he can get China uh, to take direct action against North Korea. China uh, is divided on the question of North Korea. And while you can meet many business leaders in Shanghai who say, we are done with North Korea, we, want any, we don't want anything to do with them, for every business leader in Shanghai who feels that way, you can find some security type in Beijing who thinks they're a historical ally. And by the way, China doesn't want to, re doesn't want to open a lot of uh, uncertainty on the Korean Peninsula right now. So I think, it's, uh, I think it's going to be difficult to work with the Chinese. I think the U.S. is going to have to um, uh, try to look for ways to slow down the program, whether it's through cyber or some other types of, uh, of aggressive action between the space of war and peace. Uh, I think that has to be part of the solution. And I think overall there needs to be a, uh, I won't call it strategic patience, but there needs to be an understanding that any solution here is going to require the careful choreography of several elements and we just have to hope that this administration is up to that in terms of uh, the wisdom it will, uh, it will take. I might add one more thing, and then maybe we could go to some, a more interactive process here, um, which is a lot of people say, hey, North Korea is an impoverished little country, and the reason they want these nuclear weapons is that it assures their regime survival. So come on. Let them have some nuclear weapons. They can't really harm anyone. This is just about ensuring their survival. They don't mean any harm to anybody. Well, I would respectfully disagree with that view. And by the way, that view is, is, is strong because you often hear people saying that the U.S. should engage in, in, in uh, negotiations with North Korea whose purpose is to freeze North Korean um, weapons, that is, no more tests, and uh, in return for a scaling down of the annual U.S.-South Korean uh, uh, military exercises. Well, first of all, um, I would argue that this is not what the North Koreans want nuclear weapons for. I would argue that their interest in nuclear weapons is, a much more, is for a much more aggressive purpose, and that is decoupling the U.S. ROK, U.S.-South Korean uh, alliance. So you say, well, how could that work? 
here's how it works, and you have to think like a North Korean for a minute to understand it. But it's basically the view, if you're a North Korean and you look at South Korea, you're convinced that half the South Koreans are really more sympathetic to North Korea than they are to those foreigners, the U.S. So you have a lot of support within South Korea for North Korea. This is the view that you hear from, uh, from the North Koreans. And by the way, I, I heard this directly from uh, some North Korean ref, uh, uh, refugees. So if North Korea were to attack South Korea by conventional means, that would mean the U.S. would say, we're in. We, we, uh, we are part of the, you know, the U.S.-ROK alliance. means we, uh, we're in. We're at war with North Korea. And then the North Koreans say to the U.S., if you, if you are in this fight, which is none of your business, it's between us and our brothers in South Korea, we will consider you an enemy and we will launch a nuclear strike against you. And then the U.S. says, well, wait a minute, uh, you launch a nuclear strike against us and we will wipe out your country. There will be, you won't even want to put a parking lot on North Korea after we're done. And so then the question is, if, especially if you're a South Korean or if you're a Japanese, do you believe that the U.S. would take a chance with having a nuclear strike on, in the lower 48 states, whether it's Los Angeles or someplace in the U.S.? Do you think a U.S. president would accept that possibility, that risk, in return for flattening North Korea? Would a U.S. president say, well, that's a good deal, you know, Los Angeles for flattening North Korea? So if you're a South Korean or a Japanese, do you believe that? And so you can see how that decoupling process could, uh, could begin to unfold if the North Koreans could credibly hold at risk uh, U.S. targets. Now, you might argue, look, there's no way one of their uh, multi-stage missiles could actually reach the U.S., let alone be targeted and hit an urban center. I don't know. Uh, you have, uh, they, they have successfully had multi-stage missiles. They, it's, they seem quite, uh, quite intent on perfecting them. There were 25 missile tests uh, in uh, 2016. There have already been several in 2017. We know that they are experimenting with a new generation of missiles, uh, especially solid fuel. And we know that they've got the technology to do multi-stage. And we know, too, that they've been experimenting with warhead designs with their, uh, that is, miniaturization of, their, of these, uh, of these um, uh, nuclear devices that they've uh, tested five, five of them. Uh, so I don't think you could say necessarily that North Korea is not a threat to hit the U.S. mainland. So um, what would that mean for the U.S. Uh, relationship or U.S. Uh, alliance with South Korea? And without getting too far afield here, I don't want to take this too far, but think back to the uh, INF uh, controversy in the early 80s. Think back to the question of when the Soviets began to deploy SS-20s. There was a lot of concern that somehow an SS-20 uh, against Europe would not necessarily trigger a U.S. strategic response because the U.S. would be concerned that, that then the Soviets would use their own strategic arsenal against the U.S. And so you recall it was solved by putting in, or by essentially threatening to put in uh, Pershings and Glickums, uh, ground, ground-launched cruise missiles. 
So uh, again, there are a million differences between what's happening in North Korea and the, uh, the, and the intermediate uh, uh, force issues of uh, early 1980s. But I think you can see that this could be a problem for us. And then um, just to mention, the, uh, you know, the other day, uh, uh, Vice President Pence went and had a kind of fence-mending trip to Australia, and uh, Prime Minister Turnbull said something nice about the U.S. and hoped that the U.S. can help solve the North Korean issue, whereupon the North Koreans immediately threatened Australia with a nuclear attack. Um, so maybe they just want it for their own regime survival, and maybe all this other stuff is simply uh, how they talk to people, because even brutal dictatorships have politics. But I don't necessarily uh, feel that you could take that to the bank and not worry about it. So I think we have a real problem. Uh, and in the fullness of time, I think we need to slow down this thing, and I think we have to slow down the North Koreans through some kind of, uh, of uh, cyber attacks of some kind. We need to slow that down. We need to sharpen the choices. We need to get China to see this more broadly than they do now. And uh, ultimately, we need everyone comfortable with the idea that North Korea will probably, probably in the fullness of time, have to go away. Excellent. Thank you. I guess all of you would agree that it would be a very wise choice to spend the time here instead of enjoying the spring sun. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christopher. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.